So those three philosophical problems that I told you about earlier, it turns out that they are all solved when we start with God and when we start specifically with his invisible attributes that are clearly seen, his eternal power and his divine nature. When we start with the eternal power and the the divine nature of God as the foundation for our metaphysic, those three philosophical problems are solved. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge, and it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. All right, well, welcome to session two of the Biblical Worldview course. My name is Joel Sedecase, and I am coming to you from about 50 miles west of Chicago in the Fox Valley region. And um, we are here tonight to talk about how to make sense of the world. How should Christians make sense of the world? How do we make sense of this thing that we call reality or human experience? So if you're just watching now, this is session two, and I want to encourage you to go back and watch session one, which is posted on YouTube, and uh, you can access on my website or on uh, the Think Institute website, I should say, and you can get that by going to thethink.com. Institute. I'll put that up on the screen, that address. If you're listening to this later on the podcast, I want to thank you for listening. If you're watching on YouTube or uh, somewhere else, uh, we put out a lot of content like this around the biblical worldview and apologetics and how to share your faith and engage others with the gospel, because we believe that no follower of Jesus Christ should ever get caught flat-footed when asked about what or why we believe. And so what do we do? We seek to help 
dads lead their families in defending the Christian message. That is what we are all about at the Think Institute. So without any further ado, I'm going to give you some information at the end as to how you can partner with us and join our team, join the mission of the Think Institute. But uh, we need to jump into this content because we've got guys watching backstage right now as we speak who are enrolled in this course. Now, we, we put these courses on through the Hammer and Anvil Society, which is our discipleship wing of the Think Institute. And uh, if you want to know more about the course, again, you can get that that information at our website, uh, especially if you go to thethink.institute slash worldview. You can actually still join the course if you feel so inclined, or uh, you can watch the videos or listen to the episodes later. So let's jump in. Let's talk about let's talk about what is around you right now. So look around you. What do you see? Okay. As I look around me, I see I've got a laptop, um, a desk, you know, my, my phone is uh, in the vicinity. Um, what about you? If you look outside, you know, maybe you see a tree, clouds, stars. What is all that stuff? What is all that stuff? Now that might seem like kind of a silly question, kind of almost a a question that's too trivial to even ask. What do you mean? What is all that stuff? You know, the desk is a desk. The the tree is a tree. It might seem absurdly basic to ask yourself the question, what is all that stuff? But if you really think about it, it's a question that bears asking. And there are philosophers who have dedicated their lives to answering that question. What is stuff? What is it? What What is it all? You know, there was a famous philosopher, Socrates, who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. So examine your experience. Examine what's around you. In fact, let's take the tree, for example, that hypothetical tree that's outside your window. How do you explain what the tree is? How do you make sense of the tree? It's a tree, but what is that tree? To explain it, you might want to go small. Here's what I mean. You might want to break it up and say, well, the tree is made up of of parts. Okay, you've got branches and leaves, roots. Uh, If you go even internally, you've got, you know, xylem and phloem and and sap. Uh, But really, if you get down to the molecular or to the uh, microscopic level, a tree is made up of cells, plant cells, not animal cells, plant cells. And those cells are made up of constituent parts as well. There's the nucleus of the cell. And, the, and then, of course, uh, you, there's, there's all these other parts of the cell. But those parts are really, those are made up of proteins and DNA, aren't they? And proteins and DNA, that, those are molecules. Well, molecules, we could go even smaller than molecules. What are molecules? Molecules are made up of atoms that are bonded together. What are atoms? Well, if you remember your high school chemistry course, you've got different parts of the atom. You've got the nucleus, which is made up of protons and neutrons. And then there there are electrons, which circle and orbit around in a cloud around the the nucleus, the nuclei. And okay, so is that what a tree is? A tree is protons and neutrons? Well, no, because you can go even smaller than that. Protons and neutrons and electrons, I mean, these are made up of smaller parts that we call quarks. They're up quarks and down quarks. And and those quarks, what are the quarks made up of? Well, if you go down small enough, there are different theories, competing theories about what everything is made up of. String theory says everything's made up of strings. And the way that these strings vibrate is what gives everything mass. It's where matter comes from. Um, And then recently 
it was in the news that there was something called the Higgs boson, which has been hypothesized to be the what what's been called sometimes the God particle, the God particle, because it gives meaning to everything. It, gi- it gives everything its substance. Uh, John Frame, in his book, We Are All Philosophers, one of my favorite theologians, says, in my unscientific way, I want to know what the strings are made of. And you know me, Joel Sedeckes, I want to know, I want to know something similar. I want to know what are the Higgs bosons made up of? It doesn't seem like you've really explained anything. You've just broken quarks and and uh, other particles down into a, a smaller part. But what what are those parts made out of? And you know, John Frame in his book, We Are All Philosophers, he what he says is ultimately what many are saying now is that there is no fundamental particle. You can't go down small enough. As a matter of fact, when you go down to the subatomic level, or even you know the level of photons and, and protons and neutrons, what you might be dealing with might not actually be real particles at all, but something like pointers for the way that our meters read things. Now, this is getting really uh, almost esoteric. You know, I don't, you almost feel like you've gone into the quantum realm of, uh, you know, uh, the, the Ant-Man movies or, or the Avengers movies. You know, what, what exists at that level? And can we even talk about it in a meaningful way? Well, here's what we can know. When you get down to that kind of level, that subatomic level, there are no answers there about, about our tree. Remember, we started this whole thing trying to figure out what our tree is. Going down to the subatomic level does not give meaning to what the tree is. It doesn't actually tell us anything fundamental. All it tells us is that you can break things down into smaller and smaller p- parts, but there's nothing about a Higgs boson that tells me anything about a tree other than just, yeah, it's made up of Higgs bosons, I guess. So let's go in the other direction. Let's try to explain the tree in terms of the categories that it fits into, in terms of the relationships that it has categorically with other things that are like it. So let's, we'll, we'll go macro. Okay, instead of going micro, which is what we just did, we're going to go macro. All right, so let's think about the tree in terms of categories. So in my backyard, I've got a maple tree. And um, it's one maple tree that just you know, one tree, it's distinct from, from other trees. It's an individual entity in that regard, but it's a maple tree. It's in that sense, it's got similar quali- qualities and attributes to other maple trees. So we're going to put it in the maple tree category, and maybe that's going to give us some insight into what it is. Okay. And then that of course raises the question, well, what are maple trees? Well, maple trees, that that's a, a type of tree. There are maple trees, there are oak trees, there are birch trees, there are palm trees, although palm trees really aren't trees at all. I think they're actually a grass. They're a type of grass. Some of you guys who live down south can can let me know if that's accurate, but I, I believe palm trees aren't even actually technically trees. Okay, so they're out of the tree category, but there are other trees that do fit into the tree category. So maybe we ought to think about trees in terms of their, rather in terms of their distinct and discrete parts. Maybe we ought to think of them in terms of wholeness, oneness. Let's try and lump all the trees together into categories. We'll say this is tree. This is treeness. What do all these trees have in common? And that's, we're going to analyze treeness and that's going to give us meaning to our tree. But here's the thing, we're going big. So why stop at treeness? Because trees, that's a type of plant. It's a type of the, the plantae kingdom. 
and plants all have certain things in common, don't they? They've got cell walls in common. They've got certain attributes. Um, they, they've, they've got chlorophyll. They make their own food. So we're thinking in terms of plants. Maybe we ought to think in terms, maybe we ought to go even bigger than plants because plants are one of the kingdom kingdoms of life. There's plant a kingdom, animalia kingdom. So maybe we ought to think of just our tree in terms of not only in the, the plant kingdom, but in terms of living things, living things as distinct from non-living things. So we've got life and non-life, but then there are certain things that sort of blur those categories. Like a virus is a virus technically alive. Yes. And no, it's actually debated. And there are, there are even certain entities, which it's not clear what kingdom they really fall into. So maybe we ought to think in terms, uh, not just of living and unliving, but maybe just, you know, living and unliving things all have something in common. They're all material. So maybe we ought to just think in terms of material things that maybe that's our ultimate category. That's going to give meaning to that tree in the backyard. But now at this point, what are we talking about? Haven't we gone so broad that we're just talking about stuff? Does it really make sense to, to say that thinking of our tree in terms of just being stuff, being material, being matter, does that really tell us anything about the tree? So here's the dilemma we run into. When we examine the tree or the desk or the laptop or anything else in our experience, if we examine it in terms of itself and we go smaller and smaller, it ultimately gives us no answers. If we go bigger and broader and think categorically, it still ultimately gives us no answers. We are left in this predicament. When we examine human experience, the cosmos, the world around us, in terms of itself, it doesn't give us any answers. Whether we go small, we can call that atomism, thinking of everything in terms of its constituent parts, atom, which comes from a Greek term meaning uh, unchoppable. Here's how I remember that. A, A, is a prefix that negates something. So, amoral is something that is just not moral. Okay. Atom means non-choppable. How do you remember choppable? What does a tomahawk do? Chops. Okay. So, an atom, an atom is, I'm not, I'm, I'm very much mixing cultures and languages here. Okay. But I'm an American. I'm free to do that. We're a melting pot. Uh, so I just triggered everyone. So the, the atom atomism thinks of things in terms of going into smaller and smaller pieces. Holism is the term that John frame uses to describe H O L I S M is the frame is the, the John frame term for thinking of things in terms of bigger and, and bigger categories, but neither one will give us ultimate answers about reality. But the question that we need to answer, and this is the first question in our study of worldviews, is what is real? Or we might say, what is really real? That's the question that we are trying to answer. And appealing to an atomistic view or a holistic view does not give us the answers. What is stuff? What is reality? What is prime reality. Now, this study of, of reality, the study of what is ultimately real, is often known uh, by, by the name metaphysics. Now, where, um, where do we get the name metaphysics from? Well, 
in a sense, it kind of makes sense because we're thinking about uh, meta in the in the Greek means with or after, and metaphysics is sort of the study of what's after physics, what's behind the physical world, what's behind what we can see. But in reality, when the ancient philosophers came up with this term, it, they just happened to they needed a term for the um the body of writing i think it was socrates no it must have been aristotle's writings that they were um that they were collating that they were arranging and it just so happened that his study of prime reality came after his study of the physical world and so they just called it after physics meaning it literally just came later in the notebook it came later in the papers so they called it metaphysics and to this day we still call it metaphysics it's the study of what is ultimately real bound up with the study of metaphysics is the study of ontology ontology is the study of being and so when we talk about ontology we're talking about what is what uh what has existence and we're talking metaphysics we're talking about what is prime reality what is really real what is ultimate reality like what is stuff what is real and you know this question of prime reality has been a live question ever since the time of the ancient greeks ever since heraclitus said all is fire and thales said all is water it's been a live question ever since the five and six hundreds bc now there are other questions bound up with this question of prime reality and these three questions are going to be what we really talk about in this lesson. There are these three philosophical problems that we want to try and, and answer. Because when we examine human experience, here's what we find. There are different kinds of reality. Different types of, of reality have different attributes. So, for example, when we examine our world, when we examine reality, here's what we discover. Certain things exist necessarily, or at least they seem to. Other things have contingent existence. And there's this there's this weird interplay and dichotomy between necessary and contingent existence. When I talk about necessary existence, I'm talking about things that it sure seems like they would have to exist in every possible world. An obvious example of this would be the laws of logic. The laws of logic are the law of non-contradiction. Two contradictory statements can't both be true in the same sense at the same time in the same way. The law of... Um, identity, which says A is A, a thing is itself, which seems obvious, but that's a law. It's obvious because it's a law. It's a law because it's obvious. And the law of excluded middle, A or not A, nothing in between. A statement is either true or false, one or the other. Okay, those laws of logic exist in every possible world. And if you want to say, well, that's you know, that's a Western way of, of thinking about things. You know, that's not necessarily true. I could imagine a possible world in which logic didn't obtain logic. The laws of logic weren't necessarily true. Well, guess what? In a world like that, where the laws of logic weren't necessarily true, then it would be true that the laws of logic aren't true. And in that world, it would not be true that the laws of logic were true. So, you see, you still have an interplay. You still have a law of logic operative there. The law of non-contradiction still applies in that world. Unless you're going to say, in a world in which logic is not true, logic is true in that world. Well, now you're right back to having a world where logic is true. So, the laws of logic exist necessarily. 
And that's perplexing to philosophers, to thinkers. How can so so certain things exist necessarily? They're 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 immaterial. Laws aren't made out of matter, but we also have things that exist contingently. Contingent meaning they depend on something else for their existence. Con- conditions have to be right for these things to obtain, for these things to exist. I'll give you an example: you and me. We don't exist necessarily. I can certainly imagine a world in which. Nick Smelser doesn't exist. It might not be a great world. I'm sure his wife and kids are, are certainly glad that he exists, but I can imagine a world in which he doesn't. He can imagine a world in which I don't. We don't exist necessarily. Conditions had to be right. Our parents had to come together. There are great-grandparents. There was a lot of conditions that had to obtain, that had to happen first before we could exist. Matter, I can imagine a world with no matter, just a big empty world. There are things that exist contingently. And one of the great philosophical problems is which one gives rise to which? Do the laws of logic necessarily give rise to contingent things like matter? Do do necessary laws like morality, like where it's always wrong to murder, can that give rise to something like a murderer? No, the laws of the necessary laws that exist necessarily don't have any causal power. And yet here we have all these contingent things that exist. And these contingent things seem to be governed by the necessarily existent laws. There's an interplay. There's an interaction between the two of them. How do we explain this? This is a philosophical problem. It's one that we have to explain. There are these aspects to reality, to real reality that we have to explain. Your worldview has to account for this. The next philosophical problem is oneness and diversity. Oneness and diversity. You've heard those terms before, haven't you? As a matter of fact, it sounds to some of you like I'm about to launch into a corporate training program because you've been through oneness and diversity trainings at your workplace. Oneness and diversity. It's a very hot topic right now. Everyone wants to know about oneness and diversity. How do we make these diverse things one? And how do we make this one entity, this team, this company, this whatever, respectful of the unique and diverse entities and individuals that make up the whole. How do we account for oneness and diversity? And furthermore, what is more prime? What is more primary? What is more ultimate in the world? Is it oneness or is it diversity? Or we might say plurality. Is it the one or is it the many? Is everything fundamentally one, as the Eastern religions say? Or is everything ultimately just a bunch of discrete parts, like materialism would say? We're just a bunch of atoms. We're just a bunch of cells. We're just a bunch of proteins. We're nothing really ultimately more than the sum of our parts. This is a philosophical problem, oneness and diversity. And finally, the problem of mind and matter. Mind and matter. Now, this, this is a corker. This is a real interesting one. As the Brits say, this is a real barnstormer. Why? Because in reality, we seem to have something like mind. I'm Here I am, I'm thinking. And I recently had a little debate discussion. I don't know if it was little. It was an hour long with uh, a guy named Tom Jump. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. I say self-proclaimed because if you know anything about me, I don't believe in atheists. That's a whole whole another story. But what he said was 
that uh, he he he's banking everything on Descartes' co, uh, cogito, and I always I always mispronounce that word cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. And there are many people who believe that you can ground your experience, your explanation of ex- experience, in the fact that here you are, you are a self, and you exist, and therefore, from that, you can extrapolate out all kinds of principles about the world. Okay, you start with your own mind. And then from there, you can reason about reality. Here's the thing. While that might seem self-evident to some or even to many or even to most, there are those who question that principle. I'll give you an example. I don't know if he's directly questioned Descartes, but Sam Harris, the famous or maybe infamous atheist, says that the self is actually an illusion. There is no self. Yeah, I know you feel like you're a self. It's, a, it's false. You're not a self. You know who else says that? Hinduism. Hinduism says that the self is ultimately an illusion, as are all distinctions between uh, entities. And yet here we are thinking about whether or not we have minds. It almost almost seems nonsensical, doesn't it? But how do we explain the interplay and the coexistence of mind and and matter. There are different ways people explain this. Some some go towards panpsychism. They say everything has mind. Others say that the, the mind or the self is really just ultimately an illusion. How do we make sense of mind and matter? It's a philosophical problem that we need to explain if we're going to talk about metaphysics. All right. Now, because this is a biblical worldview course, we really ought to talk about how the Bible, how the biblical worldview answers these questions. And thank God, as Christians, we aren't left to speculate. We have a key, and that key is found in Scripture. And the key is so obvious when you understand what it is. It's so stinking obvious. You're going to wonder how the Greeks never came up with this. You're going to wonder how Sam Harris doesn't, doesn't see this, or how the Tom Jumps of the world miss this. You're going to wonder how you never saw it before, if you've never seen it before. The answer is located in Genesis 1.1. What does Genesis 1.1 say? If you need to look it up, go ahead. But here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right here, what we're getting, we're getting more than just an origin story. We're getting the true perspective on the world. We're getting the fundamental distinction between types of reality, there are ultimately, fundamentally, two different types of reality. There is creator and there is creation. There is creator and there is creation. And here's the big idea of today's lesson, of today's class. The key to understanding the cosmos, the world, human experience, the key to understanding it all is not to examine the parts in relation to themselves, or even the parts in relation to the whole, but rather to consider it all, some and part, in relation to its creator. The key to understanding reality is to consider the created world in relation to its creator. So, in Genesis 1-1, we have this creation-creator distinction, which is the most fundamental distinction in all of reality. There is God, and there is not God. And the not God was created 
by God. We get this in Genesis 1, but of course we don't only get it in Genesis 1. We also get it uh, throughout Scripture, but we get it in John chapter 1, verse 3. John chapter 1, verse 3 uh, reaffirms the distinction between creation and creator, and interestingly and importantly, it also brings in uh, verses 1 through 3 also bring in the Logos, who we find out later is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, into the equation. Here's what John chapter 1, verse 3 says about the Logos, about the Word, who we ultimately know is Jesus. It says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I'll read it one more time. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, we've got this distinction. We've got all of reality divided into two categories, the things that were made and the things that were not made. The things that were made were all made through Jesus. They were all made through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is on the uncreated side. So what that means is any worldview that says that Jesus Christ is an angel or a celestial or the first and greatest of God's creations is, is right off the bat is unbiblical and false. Okay, because all creation is, all reality is divided up into created, uh, creation and creator, and Jesus is on the creator side. He is God. It's a very important distinction because when you are engaging in apologetics, when you're engaging with, with, um, when you're having discussions with people about their worldview, you are going to run into people who have this view that Jesus is created by God. But, that's that's unbiblical. If you're going to think of think about Jesus, you have to think of him in biblical terms. Okay, so when we think of creation in terms of the creator, we suddenly have answers to all of our philosophical problems. All right, um, let's let's think first. Let's think about unity and diversity. Remember in the beginning, we were talking about our tree and we were trying to trying to explain the tree in terms of its parts and then in terms of the categories into which it fits. We went micro first and then we went macro. Well, according to the biblical worldview, the world is not merely the sum of its parts. Everything is not merely particles. Atomism is false. Nor, on the other hand, is everything all one such that we could you know lump all reality into um in in into just everything is one uh you know as if every as if we were pantheists or as if we subscribed to a sort of hindu monism we'll talk more about that at the end um everything is not parts because because unlike in atomism where everything is just broken down and there's no ultimate meaning unifying everything together the bible gives us meaning for those parts and explains how the parts fit together into meaningful wholes. But it's not as though the whole itself is just this amorphous um, spiritual or material blob of oneness. There are meaningful distinctions. There is real unity reflected in the reality around us. So it does make sense to speak in terms of categories, to speak in terms of laws, Okay, we don't we don't have to speak and 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 analyze each tree individually. We can think in terms of trees and treeness. Okay, we can this is very important for science. We can perform experiments on one type of tree and we can extrapolate out principles and laws about all trees, just as an example. On the other hand, there is real distinction and diversity and uniqueness and individuality 
in reality. Personhood is real. The self is real, not merely illusory. So if we describe man in general, we still have a long way to go before we understand an individual person. And all you married men will vouch for this. You can't think you know what your wife wants just because you know what all women are like. Something like that. You need to get to know your wife. And for you single guys watching this, getting to know your prospective wife is an adventure. It's a roller coaster. And guess what? The process does not end when you get married. It's a lifelong process. Why? Because the self is real. We are real individuals. Okay, we can think in terms of women, men, humanity, those broad categories, but then there are, there's this, this beautifully cool adventure where we get to investigate individual persons, individual selves. We get to look at actual uh, discrete individual entities. So if we only try to understand reality in terms of reality itself, whether the parts or the whole, we will fail to understand it at all. If we only look at the parts, we won't understand the unifying principles that give meaning to those parts. If we only look at facts, we will never get to laws. Cornelius Van Til famously said that without God, we're left with just a bunch of discrete brute facts and laws that have no connection to those facts. And he compared it brilliantly, I think, to a whole bunch of pearls with no holes in them and a string with no beginning and no end. The string is like the law. The pearls are like the facts. There's no way to make that necklace. There's no way to thread those pearls and make a pearl necklace. We need some way of interacting the facts and the laws together, the categories and the individual entities or we'll never understand reality as it actually is. So those three philosophical problems that I told you about earlier, it turns out that they are all solved when we start, not with just looking at creation, trying to understand it on its own terms, but rather when we start with God. And when we start specifically with two things, two attributes of God, the Bible calls them his invisible attributes that are clearly seen. Those two attributes are his eternal power and his divine nature. When we start with the eternal power and the, div the divine nature of God as the foundation for our metaphysic, as the foundation for our worldview, as the key that is going to unlock the treasure trove of understanding of this universe, those three philosophical problems are solved. And so let's let's look at that. Let's look at how the how starting with God, starting with God's eternal power and divine nature explains reality, answers the question of what is real, what is really real, and how um how we can make sense of the world starting with God. Okay, let's do that. Let's let's remember those three questions that we asked earlier. I'll pull those up on the screen if you're watching. Those three problems are the problem of the necessary versus the contingent the problem of oneness versus diversity, and the problem of mind versus matter. Okay, so how do we answer those, those three questions from the biblical worldview? All right, let's start with the first one, the problem of the necessary 
versus the contingent. Contingent experience versus necessary experience. What do you think? How does the biblical worldview answer this problem? Let's, when we think about necessary existence, we're thinking in terms of the laws of logic, which exist in all possible worlds, and contingent things, which might not exist in some possible worlds. Well, these are explained by God's eternal power and his divine nature. Here's how. God's eternal power explain how all this matter got here, all this contingent stuff. You know, it's one of the great scientific and philosophical problems is where did everything come from? Where did where did all this this matter and this energy come from? Um, one of the the laws of of science, one of the the conditions for making sense scientifically of the world, is this uh, this problem of or or I guess it's more of a principle of the conservation of matter and energy. Matter can turn into energy, energy can turn back into matter, but uh, matter and energy in total, is never created nor destroyed. Well, God's eternal power explains that. There was a time when there was no contingent matter. There, there, there was a possible world in which there was no contingent matter. So this is how we know matter is contingent. From a biblical worldview, it makes perfectly good sense to describe things in terms of uh, their contingency, meaning the conditions had to be right for these things to exist. There was a world in which matter did not exist. Before God created the world, there was no heavens, there, w- there was no earth. In the beginning, at the beginning of creation, at the beginning of, of um, physical time, the, the timeline in which we are, God created the heavens and the earth. So, God, only God's eternal power can make sense of how you can get something from nothing. The Bible says that God created everything ex nihilo, uh, from nothing. And how can God do that? Well, God can do everything he wants to do. God is totally sovereign, totally, totally powerful. And I explain that to my kids when I catechize them using my catechism called catechids. Um, we say, how did, how did God make everything out of nothing by his word? How can God make everything from nothing? God can do everything he wants to do. He has eternal power. Well, and then his divine nature explains why the laws of logic, for example, govern all thought and experience. Those laws of logic are real. The laws of mathematics, which are immaterial, are real. They do govern the world. How do they govern the world? How can these abstract entities, these these propositions like A is A, how can that have any bearing on the physical world so that, you know, I'm holding up a pen right now. This pen is this pen. There is an instantiation of the law of logic in the way I must think about the pen in my hand or about the tree in my backyard. How can that be? What's What brings together the laws of logic and the material world? What brings together the, the necessarily existent things and the contingently existent things? It's God. God's divine nature is logical. God's divine nature is moral. And God's eternal power created all the matter in the world. So God's eternal power and divine nature are both part of who he is. And it makes sense then that if that God is going to create the world, that there would be, there would be a perfect interweaving and connection between the results 
of his eternal power and divine nature between the contingent matter and the necessarily existent laws governing all of creation. Isn't that amazing? This is why Albert Einstein needed to know Jesus. Here's why. Because Albert Einstein was flabbergasted by the fact that there was correspondence between the math in his mind and the way that math actually played out in the real world. He could not make sense of it. As Christians, we can. We understand that the the linchpin holding it all together is God's eternal power and divine nature. Now, what about oneness and diversity? Which one of these is, is ultimate? Which one is more, which one takes priority? Is it oneness? Everything is ultimately one? Or is it diversity? We are all unique. Well, from the biblical worldview, we don't have to say either one is ultimate. In fact, they are both equally ultimate to each other. Which is more ultimate, facts or laws? Uh, categories or individual entities? Neither one. Neither unity nor plurality is ultimate. Rather, they are equally ultimate because this world in which we live was created by the triune God, the triune God, not just some monad, not just some Unitarian God, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because God's very nature, remember, his divine nature is going to be explaining all this. So his divine nature is not, he's not just all powerful. He's not just perfectly good, but he is three and one. Triune means three and one. So doesn't it make sense that God's creation would have oneness and plurality expressed in it? There is real rich, real diversity in creation. And yet there is a unity and a wholeness and a cohesion and um, a, a, a sensibility that we can, uh, an intelligibility where we can think in terms of categories and laws. We can think in terms of oneness and diversity. Why? Because that's how God created the world. And God himself in his nature is both one and plural. He is three and he is one. So, Oneness and diversity is solved in the biblical worldview. It doesn't need to be a perplexing philosophical problem. Finally, let's talk about mind and matter. Okay. Is mind an illusion? Is the self an illusion because we need to be good materialists? Or is matter ultimately an illusion? And really, all matter is mental. Or should we be idealists? Should we be monists? Should we all become Hindus or, or New Age thinkers? No. In the biblical worldview, mind and matter are both explained by the eternal power of God. We don't need to be panpsychics, meaning we think that mind is in everything, nor do we need to be Sam Harrisites and say that the self or the mind is ultimately an illusion, because mind and matter were both created by the eternal power of God. God can create matter, whatever matter is. John Frame thinks that there is no fundamental particle. I'm inclined to agree because I don't know that it makes any sense to think of the parts without the whole. I don't think it makes sense to think in terms of tiny little parts, Higgs bosons that make up me, my body, without thinking of the body, my body itself, like my me, who I am. 
I don't think it th- makes sense to think of the parts without thinking of the whole. And, and so God, by his eternal power, is able to create and has created our human minds and matter, real matter, which is, according to Scripture, upheld by the power of his word. So God made human persons in his image, and he created the material world as a theater for his glory. Now, these terms, eternal power and divine nature, where does this all come from? It all comes from Romans 1.20. In Romans 1.20, it says that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what God has made. It says his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood in what God has made. God's eternal power and divine nature are the key to understanding the cosmos. It's all right there in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, Scripture says that God's eternal power and divine nature are how we ought to make sense and answer the question of what is really real. All right, now let's look at some non-biblical alternatives as we bring this to a close. And we'll look at three of them, materialism, monism, and Unitarian monotheism. All right, let's start with materialism. In materialism, matter and energy are all that exists. James N. Anderson, in his book, What's Your Worldview, says this about materialism. Quote, everything that exists consists of nothing but matter and energy. Everything is governed by the basic laws of physics and, in principle, can be completely explained in terms of those physical laws. Every object is purely is a purely physical object. Every event that occurs has a purely physical cause, if it has any cause at all. In short, the universe is just a collection of clumps of matter following the laws of physics, end quote. So, materialism denies the creation-creator distinction, and it cannot account for necessary laws or contingent matter. Ultimately, it can't explain where everything came from, because matter is all there is, and matter can't create itself. Um, although they do believe, many of them do believe that science will ultimately, in the end, be able to account for this. Materialism cannot account for oneness. It can't account for immaterial laws and categories. Remember, when we're talking about oneness, we're talking about unifying principles. But if everything is ultimately reducible to blobs of matter, their laws are not made of matter. Laws are unchanging. Matter changes all the time. And finally, materialism can't really account for mind personhood, self. So, Sam Harris is wrong when he asserts that the material world is all there is, but he's right when he when he says that atheism and materialism cannot account for the reality of the self. Okay, so that's one unbiblical alternative to the biblical worldview, materialism. Okay, what about monism? Monism, according to James Anderson, says this, everything is ultimately one. Nothing that exists is really distinct from anything else that exists, which is just to say that in the final analysis, only one thing exists. And that one thing, call it the universe, reality, the one, or whatever you like, cannot be divided or decomposed into more fundamental parts or constituents. 
end quote. So monism, this is getting at the holism that John Frame was talking about earlier, thinking of things in terms of the whole. Well, it denies the creation-creator distinction again, because it, it doesn't allow for there to be a creator and his creation. Everything is one. Everything is one. In fact, in the Hindu worldview, man, the human soul, Atman, is Brahman, the oversoul. God is one with creation, so to speak, to put it in Christian terms. So it denies the creation-creator distinction, cannot explain why there is contingent matter or plurality, because all distinctions that we seem to observe in the world are actually illusions. They are maya in the Hindu um, worldview. They are, they are illusions. And so this ends up denying personhood. Atman is Brahman, is a core do- doctrine. That means, uh, and, and ultimately what we want in this worldview, in the Hindu worldview, for example, is we want to be released from this world of distinctions, and we want to be reabsorbed into Brahman like a water, a droplet of water being reabsorbed into the ocean. The self is ultimately denied in that worldview. And then finally, the third unbiblical worldview which we should look at as an alternative is Unitarian monotheism. Now, this is going to be the one that's closest to home for us, but there's going to be some important differences. This is um, Jehovah's Witness theology. This is Islam. This is modern-day rabbinical Judaism. And so, let's let's tackle um, Islam because it's a great example of this type of worldview. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but there are enough similarities. I think we can uh, we can speak in terms of similarities here. Islam believes that Allah is the creator, creator of the world and sustains it. Um, so there is a creator-creation distinction to a certain degree, to an important degree. Um, Peter Jones, in his book, The Other Worldview, says this about Judaism and Islam. It says, Judaism and Islam have a defective view of biblical two-ism. So Peter Jones talks a lot about one-ism and two-ism. All is one, all is two, which we would be twoists in his scheme because we recognize a creation-creator distinction. But their denial of the Trinity, Jones says, leaves them with a transcendent yet impersonal God, an attempt at twoism, who ultimately depends upon his relationship with human beings in order to constitute his personhood, which ends up in oneism by a circuitous route. In other words, God, in a Unitarian scheme, has no interpersonal interaction or relation at all until he creates. But interpersonality is so vital to personhood that the, that God in this scheme actually relies on his creation for aspects of his personhood. God can't be loving until he creates someone to love in this view. So there is a kind of creation-creator distinction, but it makes God dependent on his ultimately ends up denying the creation creator distinction because it makes God um not it denies God's self-sufficiency, which is an important part of the creation creator distinction. So morality, for example, kind of goes out the window, doesn't it? The the necessarily existent laws of morality, it's always wrong to murder, for example. It's always wrong to steal. It's wrong to bear false witness about somebody. These are laws that would require God to create before they would have any meaning. So it really does make God 
depended on his creation for these laws. Further, the laws of logic, and that creates a real problem for Unitarian monotheism. Why? Because the laws of logic are at least three. I like to think of the laws of logic in terms of three. I think there are three real laws of logic. And these three laws of logic must exist. They exist necessarily. Well, before God created the world, he was the only thing that existed. And so, how were, if God is a radical monad, if he has radical oneness, how were the laws of logic, which are three, how were they grounded in a God who is only and solely one? The God of modern rabbinical Judaism and the God of Islam and the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses cannot ground three laws of logic, which all exist necessarily because there is no plurality in his being. So again, God is required to create before logic can be meaningful, and yet logic ex- exists necessarily. So, um, it does affirm a type of creator-creation distinction, but ultimately ends up denying it um, in the final analysis. And then uh, it does affirm, however, mind and matter. It does affirm that distinction, but again, there are aspects of our own personality which are interpersonal. So, God does not have those those characteristics, and so it would make no sense to say that we are made in the image of God, which creates a real problem for you know biblical, um, well, for Judaism, for example, which claims to believe the Old Testament, and yet says that we are made in the image of God, and yet we have an interpersonal uh, experience and and um, uh, nature, but God himself does not have that in the Unitarian scheme. So, in conclusion, non-biblical worldviews try hard but ultimately fail to account for the way reality ultimately is, really is. They can't adequately answer the question, what is really real? This isn't because reality is that hard to explain. It's not like we can say, well, you know what, you tried hard, but ultimately, yeah, reality's tough. Reality's tough to explain. No. God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Scripture is very clear on that. Instead, unbiblical man, unbiblical thinking is guilty. We are guilty for denying what God has made obvious to us in his creation. And ultimately, our thinking will never be set right until we understand the key to the cosmos, which is not to examine creation in response to itself or in relation to itself, but to consider all the cosmos, both some and part, in relation to its creator. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. Think.